Hello, and welcome to this career cast brought to you by the Career Development Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. I'm Prerna Larha, a trauma and acute care surgeon at Metro Health Medical Center, Cleveland, and an assistant professor at Case Western Reserve University. Today, we will be discussing something we probably feel a lot more frequently than we talk about, imposter syndrome. We're lucky to have on this panel three trauma surgeons who have forged unique paths and are excellent educators. Dr. Anastasia Kunak, she is an associate professor at the New Jersey Medical School, Rutgers University. She has extensive experience having been the program director for the general surgery residency and vice chair of education at Rutgers. She is now the chief of surgical critical care for the Veterans Health Administration, New Jersey healthcare system. Dr. Ariel Santos, associate professor of surgery at Texas Tech Health Sciences Center, Lubbock. He is the chief of acute care surgery at Covenant Medical Center and the director of telemedicine for the Texas Tech School of Medicine. And Dr. Kanisha Williams, assistant professor of surgery at Emory University, acute care and trauma surgeon at Grady Memorial Hospital and the chief quality officer and Ms. Cliff champion at Grady Memorial Hospital. Thank you all for joining us to talk about this very important topic. To start, could you each share a little bit with us about your unique journey and instances where you might have felt like an imposter? Dr. Santos? I think I'll start. So uh, uh, I have a kind of unique background. Uh, I did my uh, um, uh, medical education in the Philippines at University of Santo Tomas, then did a residency training there at uh, Jose Reyes Memorial Hospital. It's one of the uh, uh, government uh, institution and we're seeing a lot of patients and uh, it's a high volume center. And uh, luckily I applied at University of Louisville and did a fellowship and got accepted there. And of course, coming in from a different country and uh, different language and different setting and different culture, I think there is a little bit of a, uh, a transition adopting to the American way of life. Uh, and. Uh, it is so funny because I'm just so quiet during the time because uh, I, I think we had to define what is an imposter syndrome. You know, this is, uh, they said, an internal experience of believing that you are not as competent or others perceive you to be. And uh, that you are, you know, a phony, a fraud, or a fake, you know, that you don't, you don't belong there. And that you went, you, 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 you got your position because of dumb luck, you know. Uh, and sometimes I have that feeling, transiently. Uh, and uh, I, I tried not to open my mouth or even express my ideas because I'm, I, I thought, well, they might thought I'm, 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 I'm an idiot, you know, that I'm saying uh, stupid things that what the hell am I, am I saying? Um, uh, and so uh, I have that transient feeling, but eventually I was able to, I think, overcome that. Um, and sometimes I think because English is not my, you know, uh, native language. And I have a different accent, you know, and uh, different looks and and everything. So, so uh, it is not very welcoming at, at the beginning, you know. And and again, you know, this is in two thousand two and two thousand four. You know, we are not talking about unconscious bias during that time. But you know, uh, I'm pretty sure you felt, you know, that there are bias against you. That uh, I do remember. Um, I have a. Uh, uh, um, a core resident. By the way, uh, I finished my uh, uh, my fellowship. Then I had to apply and become intern again and start as a as a first year, even though I already knew how to do surgery. And so whenever I talk that to the patient, yeah. And so whenever I talk to the patient, <laughs> uh, who are the surgeon, and I will tell them, well, I'm the resident surgeon. And sometimes you probably have this experience. Is there any other surgeon? You know, uh, and this is Louisville, Kentucky. And so uh, it, it's very different. Um, and I had to fight on that. Uh, I had to sometimes uh, uh, make myself talk like I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, like, you know, uh, could give me the tie. And they will say, what do you mean tie? It says the, uh, the suture tie. Oh, tie. You mean tie. So uh, things like that. And so you have to, <laughs> really have to adapt uh, and able to overcome that. I kind of realized eventually that you know, the, those uh, residents and my colleagues are not different from mine because as an intern, I'm being called to help them with their thoracotomies, explore lab. I, I'm trained to do that. The attending does not need to be there when I'm operating with uh, with my, my chief resident. 
And so after finishing the operation, typically the, the uh, intern will close, right? So they will just ask me, well, you could scrub out now so you could take care of the uh, scut work, you know, in the, uh, in, the, uh, in the floor. So those were my life. Essentially, I thought I don't belong there. But uh, I think I overcome knowing who I am. I think I have a uh, deeper feeling of what is my capabilities, what are my abilities, and what I know. Uh, sorry, uh, but again, you know, uh, I did a little bit of a reading, and they said that uh, uh, the term I think was first described in 1970s by Susanna Imes and uh, uh, Pauline Rose Clance, and they thought these are more common. I'm not, you know, um, uh, stereotyping things, but uh, seem to be identified first among high achieving women and seem to be much more common, you know, if you're earlier in your career. So, and, and, and so uh, I think people of minorities, disadvantaged group, you know, people of color are seem to be more exposed to this because we're much more exposed to implicit conscious and conscious bias, micro and macro aggression. And so I think there's a little bit of attack to our confidence. We're trying to be confident. We could be confident enough. However, if people are, you know, attacking our confidence and, you know, uh, uh, giving us these uh, biases and whatnot, I think it could chip on our confidence and, you know, make us feel that we don't belong there. I don't know what your guys thought. That's are. A great, yeah, no, that that's a great uh, that, that's a great perspective, and I think you're. Uh, I I got lucky that even though I came from a different country, I didn't have to redo intern year to where I had to go back to it after being a surgeon, and I I can only imagine how hard that might have been. Uh, your point about how it was identified in high achieving women. Uh, is something I uh, came across as well, and I want to take the conversation to a high-achieving woman who I have a lot of respect for. Dr. Kunak, uh, do you want to share with us your journey and your thoughts? Uh, and thank you. Um, I, I think people who experience imposter syndrome, myself included, it often stems from caring for a patient who has a bad outcome or an unexpected outcome or an undesirable outcome. And uh, my journey as compared to other surgeons is a, is a bit unique or uncommon in that I've always been passionate not only about the practice of surgery and trauma and surgical critical care, but also palliative medicine. So I entered practice uh, in my very first year of practice with a strong focus in palliative medicine as well and hold a board certification in hospice and palliative medicine. And when I think back to my very first week covering the ICU as an attending surgeon, um, I had a total of six deaths in my first week of practice. Four of those deaths were patients who really, you know, the patient and their families really needed to come some, to some decisions around goals of care and end of life care. Patients who had been lingering for a long while in the ICUs, um, who I had established a relationship with even before my service week with them. And, and really, we were offering them high quality end of life care. One of them was a patient that had a bad outcome um, following um, an elective gynecological procedure who was actively dying when I picked up the service. I was sort of able to forgive myself for that. But the last patient was a patient who on Friday night, I was trying to catch up on my notes for the week. And I got a call about a 25-year-old male who had had an elective surgical procedure and was in profound septic shock. And they asked me to evaluate him on the floor. It happened to be that he was on a ward adjacent to the ICU. From the doorway when I saw him, he looked terrible, uh, but was awake, didn't speak English. Uh, I didn't know what his cognition was, but I immediately said, let's wheel him over to the ICU. He looked terrible. He was febrile. He was hypotensive. He was tachycardic. And I got an interpreter on the phone with the intent to simply tell him that we were going to be you know, putting in a central line and begin resuscitating him and do all of the things that we routinely do urgently for the care of a profoundly septic patient. And while on the phone with the interpreter, he sees and then arrested. And it turned out that his pH was six and a half. 
uh, he was profoundly ill and we were performing CPR hour after hour for six and a half hours and ultimately he succumbed to his illness, sadly with his pregnant wife watching. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, that's just, that, I have goosebumps right now. And that's, yeah. I cried alongside this grieving wife and the man's parents and their family. And in the light of day, the next morning, I called one of my mentors from fellowship and said, I don't think I'm supposed to be practicing medicine. I don't think I'm good enough. If I can't save a 25-year-old with septic shock as a new intensivist, right? I don't think I belong here. And all of that self-doubt sort of showered down on me. And um, this person sent me, <laughs> sent me somebody that you know, Prana, um, sent me a review article about survival to hospital discharge for patients that have a cardiac arrest secondary to metabolic disturbances and septic shock. And it was a review of many thousands of patients and the anticipated mortality was essentially 100%. And so he sent me data to say that you couldn't have done better. Um, and I eventually climbed out of that hole, but I think for many of us, we have a bad outcome or an unexpected death or something awful that, that happens and it precipitates this sentiment. That, um, we're not ready, we don't know what we're doing. Somebody more experienced could have done better. Um, and I now know that many of us feel that at various stages in our career. Um, and that happens subsequent with, you know, intraoperative deaths and, and complications, but you really can't practice surgery in a meaningful way without occasionally having a morbidity or a mortality. And so I, I think we really have to understand you know, did we do right by the patient? Did we do the best that we possibly could have done for them? Did we learn what we could have learned from this particular situation? Um, and we have to be able to pull ourselves out of that. And, and I think those that can't really truly are suffering with this um, internal war of, am I competent enough to really do this job? And that sense of imposter syndrome. That's, that's, um... Thank you for sharing that experience. I, I know that uh, every time we share experiences like this, we relive it to some degree ourselves. And uh, it's very nice of you to share that. I think you hit on a very important point that uh, internalizing the thought that uh, maybe I could have done better, but maybe maybe I couldn't have, and maybe this wasn't me and was more than me. Uh, one of my educators from residency, who Dr. Santos knows well, uh, said to me when I struggled as a chief resident and my anastomosis fell apart and the patient ultimately died, she said, you know, this is the price we pay for the privilege of what we do, get over it. And uh, I, I think I've reminded myself of those words countless times in the last two years. Um, taking the conversation to someone who's uh, also an assistant professor and starting out her career like I am, uh, Dr. Kanisha Williams, we would love to hear a little bit about your story. Yes, you know, when I look back, I had to take a step back and say, when did I first experience imposter syndrome? And when I look back on it, it really was in college for me. I grew up in the inner city of South Side of Chicago. And, you know, I, and then I moved to Minneapolis, Minnesota and went to school there. And I remember sitting in my chemistry class and hearing all of the other students talk about the labs they did, the experiences they had, and very different from mine. And I remember thinking that I was out of place and that I didn't belong there. Um, and then from there, it was downhill. I had the worst semester that I have ever had in all of my education. And then it was an uphill battle really from there to, you know, and then I felt like I was in a good place. Then you enter medical school and now you're, now you're at the bottom. Now you're feeling like you're at the bottom again. Now you're questioning, do I belong here? You know, and it was really when I started to have more conversations with other medical students and started to know other medical students experiences and what they were thinking, what they were feeling. That's when I started to feel like, okay, I belong here. 
Um, I'm not the only one that's experiencing this, and I am at the level that I that I am at the level of everyone else around me, because it it took a while for me to feel that way. Um, and then you go into residency, and now surgery was never. I went into my surgery rotation thinking I just want to survive this. You know, I want to do family medicine, general medicine. I need to survive this rotation. This is the scariest thing I've ever had to do in my life. Uh, my actually my first rotation, I stood outside of an OR room because I was too afraid to go into the room because the case had already started and we had just finished orientation. I stood out there and when I finally decided to walk in, everyone just laughed at me because they saw me standing outside of the OR and they said, well, it's over now, but you're welcome to come in and you're welcome to join us for the next case. And, <laughs> and it, it was that that really made me feel very welcomed. And, and then it was like, okay, you know, this isn't as scary as I think, and, and maybe I belong here too. Um, you know, and then I decided to go into surgery. So residency, uh, I felt a little bit more, there was a little less imposter syndrome in residency in, initially. But as I moved up and moved into senior year and chief year, it, I started to feel a little bit more pressure about um, having to take over cases, having to teach junior residents. And that's when I started to feel like, okay, maybe I've made it this far and maybe there's something that's lacking you. The confidence wasn't there, you know. And again, once you start to talk to other residents, especially at other programs and things, you start to realize you're, you're where you need to be. Um, at each level, I mean, I'd have to say, get, get to fellowship, Tucson, Arizona, same thing. You know, I'm feeling a little bit out of place again. And, and I, don't, I don't understand why, right? You're, I'm very confident when I go on these interviews. I go on the interviews, I feel confident. And then you get there and there's something about hearing everyone else talk about their research they've done, all these things they've done, and it, you forget how much you've done in the process of listening to what everyone else has done. And I think the one thing that has helped me is to go back and when, I, when I'm when i reviewing my CV, updating my CV, it's like, wow, I've done a lot. I'm, I'm actually doing way more than I thought, and I'm way ahead of where I ever thought that I would have been, you know, at this point. Um, and so I think you know, I I would say that whenever you're feeling like you do not belong somewhere, you really have to take a step back. You know, the worst thing you can do is sit in your office behind a closed door, thinking about everything else that everyone else is doing and all the things that you have to get accomplished and how difficult it might be to get those things accomplished, accomplished and whether or not you have the skill it takes to accomplish those things, because you do. That's why you're there. And whenever you're in a position that you feel like you shouldn't be in, you should be in that position because no one would have put you in that position if you weren't meant to be there. There's so many people who could be in that position, but you were asked to be there for a reason. Um, and so, you know, that's what I keep reminding myself as I go through. And, and that's what I would want people to take away. If you're listening to this, you know, make sure you know that you're you're where you're at because of everything you're put into it and because of what everyone else has seen in you and you belong there thank you that's that's such great advice um when we were talking about strategies on how to identify within ourselves and overcome imposter syndrome uh, while you were uh, telling us your story you talked a lot about how you talked to other people in a similar scenario like yourself and derived some validation from talking to them and feeling like you belonged. And you also talked about how you internalized that narrative uh, for yourself. Uh, what advice do you have in terms of uh, who to surround yourself with? It, that seems like a very pivotal part of imposter syndrome is who you're around. It is, I think it's, there's there's two parts. There's two parts to that. One is you want to find people that are similar to you, and then be. So for me, it was finding other uh, people with a similar background. So other minority um, uh, position, other people from uh, disadvantaged backgrounds or whatever. You know, other women in surgery. Um, so I think that's part of it. Finding other people who have a similar experience to you. The other thing is finding people who can really mentor you. And so, you know, 
And those are going to be people who really know you. So people you feel comfortable telling them your background, telling them your story, telling them how you feel. You know, I've surrounded myself. I have mentors from everywhere that I've been that I still talk to and that have still helped me out for my career from residency to fellowship. Um, you can also find a lot of mentorships in programs such as EAST, you know, such as SBAS, and that's the Society of Black Academic Surgeons for me. The first time I went to that conference was in fellowship, and it was like, wow, I didn't know this existed, you know. Um, finding, and there's so many different programs, so many different um, uh, out there that, you know, EAST, AAST, there's, there's so many different programs out there where you can find um, a support group and where you can find mentorship for junior faculty, especially. Dr. Lada, I would just like to add. Yeah, go that, ahead. Uh, yeah. East, of course, you know, uh, uh, they have this uh, program, No Suit, No Problem. You know, I think this is good for juniors, for 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 uh, resident, for attendings, you know, junior attendings, as well as for medical students as well. And what I found helpful as well is, you know, uh, 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 camaraderie among, you know, uh, among colleagues, uh, like what we have at Society of Critical Care Medicine. Uh, what helped me as well is I attended this seminar uh, sponsored by the Association of American Medical Colleges, WAMC. They had great program dealing with, you know, uh, with these issues. Uh, they have these uh, minority programs for professional development uh, that I think very helpful. And uh, I agree with Dr. Williams, you know, uh, that uh, I think whenever you move on and transition, you know, even though how confident are you, you are, you know, there are seem to be things that could make you vulnerable, you know, to imposter syndrome. Yeah, that that uh, I think uh, you can't overstate uh, the importance of surrounding yourself with uh, the right group of people who build you up because it sounds like the internal narrative is only part of it. There, there's somebody who needs to fuel that internal narrative. Uh, Dr. Kunak, what thoughts do you have? I, I think in addition to surrounding yourself with people who have had a similar journey and with whom you can relate, it is also helpful um, to have in your group um, an expert that you can go to that can really help you dissect what's going on. As I said before, I think a lot of people who are experiencing imposter syndrome, it stems from um, perceived missteps in how they have moved through their career or how they have moved through patient management scenarios or how they've navigated a politically difficult situation at work. And, um, you know, you can have peer mentors, you can have more senior mentors, but really having somebody that you can go through and talk through how you came to be feeling where you are were there any missteps along the way um, or not? Um, I can give you another example. I had a situation where I had a patient that came in as a traumatic arrest, took the patient to, did a resuscitative thoracotomy, took the patient to the operating room. They had a bowel injury and an iliac artery and vein injury. The vein was ligated, the artery was shunted, the bowel contamination was addressed, and he was cold, coagulopathic, acidotic, bleeding. And it happened to be that uh, David Livingston, soon to be president of AAST, was in the building. And the patient wasn't doing well, and I didn't have any more tricks up my sleeve to save him. I had been in practice only about two years at this point in time. And having somebody really super senior who was an expert be able to come in and talk through, was there anything else to offer this young man? was so tremendously helpful, ultimately. Um, as it turned out, while EMS had told me that he had arrested just prior to presentation, he was asystolic in the, or was without a pulse in the field for 25 minutes before coming to us. And that piece of information I didn't initially have, but in the moment on the table, the reassurance from somebody more senior that there wasn't anything left to offer this young patient um, was so tremendously helpful as I was looking, you know, looking back at the whole experience. 
Um, and so I think on occasion that, you know, that person might not be very much like you at all, uh, but really having having somebody who who has navigated um, all of this before you in in your group of support people is tremendously helpful. That's fantastic advice because you know for me personally there are there are moments where I'm I'm you know thinking about a patient that didn't do very well and face myself with the question was is this a lack of confidence in this moment or was there truly a lack of competence in that moment and I think uh, like you said surrounding yourself with uh, experts and having someone to go to to validate that know that this wasn't a competence uh, issue and is a confidence issue. This sounds like a very big part of not allowing feelings of imposter syndrome to percolate. And I will add that that person doesn't have to be in the building. That can be somebody that you know from long ago, right? You can pick up the phone and talk through a situation with them. They don't necessarily have to you know, be in the building or be next door or have the office, you know, across the hall from you. It can be you're you're in the Midwest now. You can call Texas. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that I'm pretty sure that they'll pick up the phone still. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely Brina could like, always uh, text or call me if if necessary, you know, and, and please Please do, and I agree with you, Dr. Kunak, that uh, you cannot have too much mentor. You know, uh, uh, I, I, I think I survived this imposter syndrome and I did very well during my fellowship and residency at the University of Louisville because I'm surrounded with, um, you know, very nice people. You know, uh, my, my colleagues are all very supportive of me, you know, and, uh, um, and I agree with you, it doesn't need to be, you know, because there's nobody who is like me, you know, uh, in the faculty. and so. Um, Dr. Richardson, Dr. Polk, Dr. You know Franklin, Dr. Chilo, they all you know uh, I think nourish me you know uh, as as a person you know and I keep talk, telling Dr. Lala here that uh, and the the rest of my residents in training that uh, every one of us will have death, every one of us will have complications. The only time you will never have all of this is you stop practicing, and sometimes they are the one who are actually the loudest during M and M's and whatnot you know. Uh, criticizing while you don't operate, you know, and uh, unfortunately that's, that's the case, but I think we have to change the culture. Uh, I think, uh, you know, Dr. Kuna kind of mentioned that, you know, he was really affected by, you know, uh, um, his uh, her complication, you know, especially with the, you know, a palliative uh, a week he had where he had so many, she had so many deaths. And I think sometimes uh, as a surgeon, we are, you know, kind of vulnerable to imposter syndrome because we are hard on ourselves. We want to do better. We always want to make great things. You know, we we are we're perfectionists, I would say. And so we are not satisfied with the work we have. You know, uh, uh, if we have complications, like, oh, we have a wound infection. What could I do so to avoid that, you know, wound complication? You know, you had a, a, an X-lap and you did the transposition of iliac you know, veins and whatnot and big surgery. You know, then you had a, uh, a small complication that, that that should not take you off the bigger picture. You still that saved that patient life or you did your very best. I think I, I actually felt, you know, uh, this is weird to say, but sometimes I felt good with my resident felt bad because I know they care uh, that they are empathetic and sympathetic, that we are not nurturing sociopathy. Right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, what worries me more are those <laughs> residents and attendings that they had complications and seems to be justifying the you know and and uh, and making excuses for the error that was done um i'm not being harsh but sometimes you've seen this right there are people oh you know uh he's i operate on him you know he will really be dead but you didn't do this 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 and that or you could have not done the operation Th those were the things you know that uh you know uh, uh we, we we should think of you know i think we are a bit harsh on ourselves but i think we had to realize we did our best and we had to uh uh, uh think of the, the the inner selves that we we want what is best for a patient we did our best unfortunately sometimes our outcome is not the desirable one that, that's a great point and uh you uh you created the perfect segue for me to ask you my next question. 
Uh, you know, I was reading the other day and it said that uh, three quarters of general surgery residents feel imposter syndrome fairly frequently. And uh, I started to wonder, I said, you know, is this because surgery selects people who are perfectionists, like you mentioned? Or in addition to that, is there something about the culture of surgery that compounds that feeling? And is there something we need to do differently to, to allow for them to not feel imposter syndrome as frequently as they do? I would say yes. Uh, I think uh, as a surgeon, we are all perfectionists. We want to be superhero. You know, we want to make sure we do our very best and we want to make sure uh, I keep on hearing, oh, you're an overachiever. You want to do this. And uh, uh, they even ask, you know, who are those people? You know, uh, like there's a question. Uh, do you feel like your work must be 100%, 100% all the time? You know, do you have uh, do you uh, go out of your office very late and says, check, check, that's me, <laughs> you know, uh, and, 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 and sometimes we are being accused of micromanager, like, oh, you know, uh, the, the production needs to be this, but, but those are our job, right? Um, uh, we, we want to achieve their certain level. I, I think we could probably do better. I think we had to identify, you know, how we will improve in our uh, m and I, I would like actually to change m and to quality improvement conference because m and had a bad connotation personally. Uh, but uh, uh, I think um, in our quality improvement conferences, we should probably um, not to blame because we all have M&Ms and sometimes it could be pinpointing and throwing people under the bus. I think we should not do those uh, uh, those uh, culture anymore. I, I think they could be you know uh, counterproductive. And what I think as well is whenever we have bad outcomes, I think we should have debriefing. I think it should be part of the uh, of the uh, culture, the new culture that uh, whenever bad things happen, we had to debrief, you know, so we we don't have that lingering feeling that uh, like what Dr. Kunek and Dr. Williams mentioned that, you know, uh, uh, what could have we done differently and probably we could employ, you know, the help of our supervisor, our mentors in, 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 in this discussion sometimes if we have uh, unresolved issues. Dr. Williams? Yes, I completely agree about the uh, debriefing and the quality because I, you know, there's two different extremes. There's the the surgeon that that says they didn't, they did everything right, right? And like you said, everything was done right, and and this complication just happened. And then there's the the surgeon who does do everything you can possibly do, but you go home still wondering what could I have done differently. And you do that too much to the point where you can't move forward with other cases or, you know, but it's always good to look at all of your cases, even if you had no complications, even if it's always good to say, what can we do differently? Um, and that's your quality conference you're talking about. And I, and I totally agree with that because I was just having a conversation last week where we were talking about um, compartment syndrome and, should we be presenting if a patient, you watch a compartment syndrome um, um, and uh, after a vascular repair, and then you don't do a, a fasciotomy, you take them to the, the floor, you watch them, and then you take them back, should all of those be uh, brought to morbidity and mortality conference? And then someone said, well, if you bring all of those, then people are gonna start doing fasciotomies. And it's not, but it shouldn't be that way, right? Because you're just bringing cases forward to have a discussion, um, not to say something should have necessarily been done differently, but could it have been? Um, and and so I think that that's very important, you know, and I, I, I you know, we've all had those cases where we question ourselves, what could we have done differently in those devastating cases you know, I had a retrohepatic IVC gunshot wound that, you know, I was a junior. I, I, I think I was in the first year um, of being at uh, Grady. And I remember thinking after the, the patient did not survive this injury. And I remember thinking, as we said, it, if someone else was in this room and I did call more senior faculty into the room, but if someone else had started this case, you know, would it that this patient had survived and and I kept and I think I said that to someone I you know I think this would have maybe turned out differently and you know when when you step back and thinking about it now I'm three years out from that surgery I realized that I 
you know, the mortality of this IVC injury plus the iliac injury, because it was both, it's very high. And that's the same thing you were saying. My partner, you know, the next day I'm talking to my partner and he's going, the mortality from this is high, you know. Um, and this was really, you know, a difficult case for me because I'm, you know, I informed the family. This was one of those where I'm crying on the way. You know, I informed the family. As soon as I walk away from the family, I start crying. And then Paige is going off for another trauma. So now I get to have my short cry on the elevator, you know, down to the next trauma. And then you keep moving forward. But then in your mind, you keep going back to that. What could I have done differently? Um, I think now, you know, now with talking to my partners and understanding that, you know, it, you do the best you can. And, and if you're doing the best you can, and if you're calling partners into OR to help you, if you're, you're using all the resources you have, then, you know, you're, you're doing the best you can. Um, and I think the, you can't let those cases get you. And I, I, that was a case that really did get to me more than I think I even appreciated at the time. That's great. That, that's great uh, for you to share. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Kunak, with your extensive experience with uh, educating residents, what, what do you think about our culture in surgery and its impact on imposter syndrome? And how can we do better? So I, I think that medical education in general is doing a little bit better. Um, we, I agree, probably three quarters of general surgery residents are experiencing imposter syndrome at some point in time in their training. So we as program directors have to meet with the residents twice a year. Those meetings in recent years, I hope at programs across the country have become perhaps a little bit more meaningful because the ACGME has now implemented mandatory individualized learning plans, which means that there has to be two-way communication between program leadership and the trainee about their educational goals, which means that if you're having that conversation in the intended manner, the resident is talking to you about their own perceived weaknesses. And so I think we're moving in a direction where we're not just telling them, hey, all of the faculty think you're doing great, or all of the faculty think you're falling short, and it's not a delivery of information to the resident in those meetings. It's two-way communication about how do they think they're doing? What do they wanna work on? Um, and in having those discussions, nearly every single resident has perceived weaknesses in how they manage patients, uh, their accumulation of medical knowledge. They don't, there's many residents that feel they don't know what they should know to be taking care of patients properly. As they get to be slightly more senior, there's confidence issues around managing their team. Uh, and when an intern is not doing what they're expected to do, I just don't know how to make them do what I, <laughs> what I expect them to do. Um, so it's not just, it's not just about patients, um, but they, they have these, sort of crises of confidence around many, many different issues. And I think we can mitigate some of that by talking to them about what they're, you do not walk in on July 1st of your intern year knowing how to be a surgeon or knowing how to manage all of the problems that are gonna be put forth before you on that day. Um, so you have to understand sort of what's in your wheelhouse, what is in your set of expectations, what are your goals for the immediate future and understand and have the confidence to bump things up as appropriate and having conversations around what those expectations are, I think really helps with that. Um, and to speak to what others have said about debriefing, I think organized debriefing is super helpful. Um, when we have a really terrible, unfortunately in Newark, we've had situations where we've had you know, uh, mass casualty situations and multiple simultaneous traumas. We have had situations where we had a particularly difficult or unexpected death and many patients or many, or many providers or many services were involved. Um, most recently with the COVID pandemic, I mean, I, I had a night on call where I had five different patients in, in multiple different ICUs arrest. It, if those nights were hard for me, those, you better believe those nights were hard for everybody else taking care of the patients, right? 
And so we've engaged our hospital chaplain and our counselors from our family support team in doing organized debriefings when we know that the resident health staff are gonna have a hard time wrapping their heads around what they're saying. And I think that that has helped to mitigate not only moral distress in our trainees, but also help to mitigate some of the imposter syndrome that comes from that. Because seriously, imposter syndrome unaddressed leads to not only anxiety, but depression. If you let them stew in their own, uh, I, the term I use with them is wait around in their own cesspool. <laughs> They're not allowed to wait around in their own cesspool. <laughs> we have to use some strategies to, to pull ourselves out of that. <laughs> Now, now, you know, these days, social media is, uh, is such a big influence. Um, you know, everybody is on Twitter and everybody is talking about all the important things that they did that day. Do you think that um, the influence of professional social media uh, influences the way we uh, perceive our abilities and where we find ourselves when we measure up? Uh, Dr. Lala, I think social media is kind of double-edged sword. You know, it could be good, but it could be bad as well. So I think, and I am in Twitter, but you don't see me, you know, commenting every time, you know, only when I'm off, uh, like, you know, uh, this weekend. <laughs> you know, I'm on, it's just, I, I cannot do this. I cannot, uh, you know, somebody will probably, you know, hate me on saying this, but how, you know, I don't believe you're busy enough if you could still post social media on your calls, you know, just, just me. You're not busy enough, you know, to, to post things, you know, but uh, probably people will hate me, but that, that, that's okay. But I think um, uh, the overuse of social media may lead to some feelings of inferiority and, uh, and uh, that could affect our psyche. And I think we should, you know, uh, we should just avoid it, not to be uh, too ingrained that it could potentially affect your everyday life. Uh, the other thing, though, is, you know, just like to add a little bit to, uh, you know, uh, what Dr. Kunak mentioned earlier on, you know, sorry to digress, but uh, I think it's very important to our, you know, residents um, that we set up goals for them, that the goal should be uh, achievable, not too excessively lofty. And uh, we don't, we don't, we, we give them enough pressure because pressure is good, you know, stress is good, but not too much pressure that they, they become disabled. Uh, I made it to the point right now. Um, well, I'm do, doing this for, you know, three years now that uh, uh, the people that, you know, the residents that uh, are rotate with us, uh, I gave them, you know, uh, our curriculum. I gave them my list of expectations for the, uh, for, the, uh, for the acute care surgery. And then I meet them and then ask them any questions, anything. Then I meet them again mid-rotation, the middle of the month, you know, to say, hey, how are you doing? Then, you know, do a little bit kind of debriefing at the end of rotation. Hey, how are you have you been done? And I, and and I think giving a uh, a truthful assessment of what they have, of what they or where they are, and what are the things uh, they need to improve. I think uh, we owe it we owe it to them, you know, to give this you know feedback and uh, you know making sure because sometimes it's not a guessing game. You know, how would they know what we want if you, we don't tell them what we want for them to achieve, right? So I think uh, it should be a two-way process, not just, oh, we're just expecting you to be a best resident ever, period. You know, we had to set the goals. We had to make sure we assess those goals and probably at the end of the day, you know, evaluate after at the end of the rotation. Dr. Williams, what are your thoughts on the influence of social media? You know, I agree. It's a double-edged sword. I think that what you know, people need to realize social media, people post their best, they post their best experiences, their best everything. So even social media not related to medicine, you know, it, it causes a lot of anxiety and depression for people because they're they're looking at people's lives from the perspective of everything is perfect. Every, you're always smiling. You only post pictures where you're smiling or you're doing something for a doctor, right? And so I, I think that, you know, it, it, it is a double-edged sword. Whereas I've, I've found very many groups and mentors through social media. I've, I've you know, so yeah, it, it, you have to use it for what you can use it for, right? So I've avoided, when I was junior, when I first um, joined faculty at Grady, I did used to look at, you, you would see things pop up on Twitter and everybody's out there doing everything. It seems like everybody's presenting and all these things are going on and it feels like the world is moving around you and you're moving slower than you should be. But, you know, what I've, 
what I've come to find out is, and now I'm posting things that I'm doing, and, and now you know, and you realize that your your time will come, your things will come, you know, and not everything is going well for you know, <laughs> you know, you had one good day that you posted about, but there's three days in there where you didn't post the everything that you were dealing with, whether or not <laughs> trauma bay or an ICU, yeah. you know, and and so it is a double edged sword, but I, I think that you really have to find understand what social media is and understand so knowing that uh knowing knowing that we all have an influence on each other should we uh talk about our failures more often or more publicly we definitely should i think we definitely should you know i i am very open about my failures i'm very open about how i feel and and i i try to at least with trainees you know i ask them after a, tra a trauma how are you feeling let's debrief I tell them about my experience when I was a resident, this happened to me and it was devastating. And how do you get past that? Because I think the more you talk about it, you're changing the culture, right? You're changing the culture of what surgery was 40 years ago. The, the culture has continued to change, um, you know, throughout. And I think that I, I, from when the time I was in medical school to now, it's changed greatly, I, I you know, based on what I've seen. Because I remember being a medical student and seeing someone die and no one said anything and you're just standing there like, oh my God, what, what just happened? <laughs> and everybody just walks away, you know? And you're trying to process that. And now I'm very cognizant to pull my students aside and say, this happened, you know, this is what we, you know, when I think that more people are, but when I was a medical student and I'm sure it was, you know, I was a medical student in, you know, 2005 to 2009. So not too long ago, but, you know, I can't imagine what it was like, you know, prior to that. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, we, we really should continue to change the culture. And it's really about making sure that we show support for trainees, support for our colleagues saying, you know, your colleague is there, your colleague had a, a bad day. Asking your colleague, how was, how, how are you taking that? How you had a lot of deaths last night. How, how is that going for you? How are you doing? And I, I think that that's important that we change the culture because when, when trainees see that occurring, they understand that depression, anxiety, uh, self-doubt, all of these things are a part of what we do. You know, we, this is a difficult profession um, and, and we really have to work together in order to continue to perfect it. And we all, we want to, we want to perfect ourselves. We want to be perfect, but we have to let go of that, right? In order to let go of the imposter syndrome, but we want to keep perfecting our, our craft and the quality that we give. And part of that is working together um, as a whole um, to help to help each other with our yeah. imposter syndrome. That is so important and so well articulated. Thank you for saying that. Um, I wanna I wanna open the floor to each one of you to talk about any books, podcasts, or other influences that you would recommend for our listeners. And as we bring this career cast to an end, any final snippets of advice that our listeners should internalize, Dr. Kunak. So I, I think, you know, first and foremost, every single person listening has to understand that everybody who's ever practiced surgery in earnest um, and with integrity has at some point in time had some self-doubt and that that is not unique to any one of us. Um, and it's important um, to make sure that we look at ourselves, our progression in our careers, our outcomes with each of our patients, that we learn from them, that we put forth our best self on any given day. Um, but we also have to be kind with ourselves and understand that if you really truly did the best that you knew how to do in any given moment for your patient, for yourself, for a family, for your team, um, that it's okay to acknowledge that, to acknowledge whatever may have transpired and then to move, move forward from there. And that we need to build a support system around ourselves that allows us to do that. Dr. Santos? 
Well, uh, th thank you. That that's actually excellent, Dr. Kunak. Um, uh, I just want to uh, probably say that impor imposter syndrome uh, is a feeling, you know. Uh, however, it is not a disease. It's not an abnormality. It is common. Everyone experience with conscience. Everyone with conscience can experience this. And sometimes probably we don't know that, you know, that feeling is called imposter syndrome. It's just that feeling, right? And uh, we had to learn as well that, uh, you know, uh, uh, everyone had this, even Maya Angelou, you know, and Albert Einstein, the great Albert Einstein had imposter syndrome. So we're not alone in this. Even the great ones, you know, have self-doubt as well. Uh, I agree with the, uh, Dr. Kunak that I think it's very impor important you know, uh, to be kind to yourself, you know, and to be kind to others, because sometimes we could uh, um, uh, proliferate this imposter syndrome by being unkind, you know, to our colleagues, to our, to, our, to, to some of our, you know, uh, co-workers. I think um, uh, one of the strategies that you could do is making sure you share this feeling. And that's why, you know, social media could, could be could be important, you know. You could share your 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 feeling in social media. Uh, I would say moderately, because you could have support and friends there in social media as well. Uh, I would say that we should stop comparing ourselves to others. You know, like oh, looking looking at my CV, comparing it to the other people's CV. I think it's very important to just focus on yourself. You know, uh, know your abilities and be happy and content with that. Uh, uh, also, I, I think uh, we, we had to be just, you know, uh, very kind and very understanding, you know, uh, uh, and put ourselves in other people's, uh, you know, shoes. So we'll understand, you know, how to mitigate, you know, this imposter syndrome. Dr. Williams. Yes, um, I agree. I, you know, what I would say is, just know that every step you take, you, you you make advances with dealing with imposter syndrome and you have to be very cognizant of when it's sneaking back up on you um, because it can do that relatively quickly and you it can go unrecognized. And, you know, I, sometimes imposter syndrome, you, you it can be stifling. It can make you, it can stifle you <laughs> in your career if you let it. And and I think that that's the biggest thing is not to to let that happen and just understand that um, you know, a lot of people are experiencing it. And I think the more we talk about it, the more we'll find out that more people experience it than we think. Um, that that's what I would say. I appreciate you joining us today and sharing such raw experiences and great advice. I learned a lot and I'm lucky to be surrounded by mentors in Cleveland and having those in New Jersey and Texas a phone call away. Validation from those around us and internalizing a positive narrative are great takeaways. Thank you for listening to this career cast brought to you by the Career Development Committee of East. We would love to hear your comments and topics you would like for us to cover in the future. Please also have a listen to the trauma casts, which are audio interviews produced by the Online Education Committee for additional content relevant to the management of the injured patient. Thank you all.